have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Miller, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 8, where we were finally introduced to Jamie Snow, his attorney, and his daughter. And for me, I think this episode was really a turning point in the investigation. We did lots and a little something different this, this season. We did a lot of background into the case. I wanted you guys to really have the opportunity and myself to study the case facts and the evidence that was available to us before we heard from Jamie, so we could look at that without any kind of bias whatsoever. Uh, but now we're going to be shifting our focus of our investigation into investigating Jamie and the case against Jamie uh, that we're going to be moving on to on Sunday. And in fact, uh, we are on a, a deadline recording this because Jamie's about to call me here in, in 46 minutes. So this podcast will not go on any more than 46 minutes from this point right here. It's counting down. Right. So I am joined in. Officially, NBI Studio is 2.0 now. We don't have the entire build-out completed with our new office space and everything, but we do have our recording room done. We are actually sitting in it right now. It's completely finished. Uh, hopefully, there's not a much echo in here. There may be a little because we just, just got moved in and we have no decorations on the wall and all that stuff helps with the echo. But uh, we are in there. We're all excited. I'm in here with, of course, Mike Bussing. Hello. And Zach Weaver. Hi, Bob. And we are ready to get going with your questions about Episode 8. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. All right, our first one comes from Garrett. Do all of Jamie's kids have the same mother? Uh, they don't. Five out of six do. So uh, Jamie was married for a long time, high school sweethearts. They have five children together. Tammy, I, I hope it's Tammy. I'm, I'm, I was just looking at another case, and Tammy just came into my head in that one, too. But I believe... His wife, without my notes in front of me, his name was Tammy. Uh, he had five children with Tammy. He was actually separated from his wife. They were, I don't know if they were divorced yet or they were in the process of getting divorced when, uh, when Jamie was arrested. And, and when that happened, his new girlfriend, fiance, whatever she was, was actually pregnant. So Jamie has a sixth child, a boy named Jeremy, that was born after he was in prison. He's actually never met his sixth child. 
but the other five were all with his wife. All right, this next one's from Lauren. Can you go through the process Jamie already started before he got in contact with you with the message in a bottle? He seems to already have a great team behind him. It's kind of a long and complicated story to tell, and I don't know that I know exactly all the details yet. Mike, you and I have have spoken with Tammy Alexander, who you heard Jamie refer to in this week's episode as his case coordinator. Right. Jamie went through, he was... He he went through his trials and everything and and his direct appeals. I don't know a whole lot about that. I do know a little bit about his his original attorneys. And then he he took his case up with the Innocence Project of Illinois as well as the Exoneration Project, who both took his case. And so they've been working on his case for, as you heard Tara Thompson say, about ten years. Jamie has filed already. Uh, a writ of habeas corpus, which is post-conviction work, and that was denied by the courts. I have not been through all those documentations. I have talked to uh, both Jamie and Tara about it. You guys will hear about it more in detail as we as we move along. But it, it, it seems unbelievable, almost that it was denied. I mean, I know I know one of the things that that was involved in it were were multiple witnesses that testified against Jamie at trial recanting their statements uh, that they gave at trial. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, so he was convicted. I mean, it's a it's a due process violation of the Constitution. He was convicted based on false evidence, uh, but there's a lot of factors that go into that, as we've seen with other cases. But it was denied, but they are still continuing to fight. They're, I mean, it, you, I think the way Jamie put it in the episode was, or in his letter, in his message in a bottle, was that this case is still twisting and turning as we speak, as you read this. And that's true. Um, Tara has investigators working on the case. Uh, I believe the Innocence Project still has investigators working on it. Uh, I, I guess it's been a few years back that Tammy Alexander got involved, and and she was, and we'll have her on the show before too long, and she can tell you the story uh, accurately and in depth. But essentially, she was part of a program where they they kind of became pen pals, or they wrote letters to inmates. She started communicating with Jamie and. The more she got to know him, she started looking, pulling documents and researching his case and found him to truly believe that he was innocent and became an advocate. But I mean, one of the most powerful advocates I've ever seen in a case that we've worked. There's always usually at least someone, a family member, somebody that is behind the people that are in prison trying to work for their case. But I mean, Tammy has been fighting and fighting and fighting. Uh, she's the one that filed most of the FOIA requests. She's the one that filed the lawsuit when they over-redacted the files. She works directly with Tara Thompson. Uh, she brought in, I believe it was, it was Tammy that got in touch and brought in uh, the guy you heard me mention, Ray Wilson, who I've yet to speak with. Ray sends me emails and we text back and forth, but I've really been kind of holding off on a lot of stuff with Jamie's case. And I just, you know, with all the, the communication issues we had with the move, I haven't had a chance to really talk to him in depth. But uh, Ray is a former, and we're going to hear from him hopefully too. I haven't asked him if he'll interview, but Ray, I know you're listening. I'm going to need you to do an interview <laughs> at some point. So you can, um, th- that's something that I want to have coming because Ray, is, is, his, his background is he was a former police chief. Uh, and then he turned into an investigator and, and he knows the case forward and backwards. Sounds like a guy I know. Yeah, that guy was a fire chief. Close enough. (laughs) Same difference. (laughs) Same thing, same thing. But so Tammy gets Ray involved. They're working with the attorneys. Uh, I think Tammy helped put together the freejamiesnow.com website. She's done a lot of advocacy work. She goes down to the McLean County 
in Illinois, where Bloomington is every year at the county fair and puts together a free Jamie Snow booth. She has reached out to people. She's one of the she was she reached out to me uh, as well as Jamie also reaching out to me. So he's got a hell of a team working on his behalf. And as you heard, you know, a little blip of Tara Thompson with the Exoneration Project. I've talked to her in depth and everyone that's connected to the case that is thoroughly investigated. And I'm not included in that group yet, intentionally. Um, I wanted to look at the case first before looking at Jamie's case, but but I don't know the case thoroughly. But everyone that I've spoken with that does know the case thoroughly is 100% convinced of Jamie's innocence. And they're all continuing to work. They're not giving, I mean, a lot of times some after you lose a post-conviction plea, or um, um, claim with the court, that's kind of it. You know, people, you, you may have people still hanging around, but Jamie has attorneys and advocates and investigators actively still to this day working on his case. And that was one of the reasons he wanted us to take it up on the podcast was because we may be able to jar something loose. Uh, whereas, you know, the, I think Jamie put it very eloquently in his letter where he said, you know, all the people that he's working with, all those attorneys, they have an audience of judges. They, their, their audience is the people in the system, which he feels got it wrong. And he's not wrong about the fact that the system doesn't want to admit ever, hardly ever, that they made a mistake. So they're trying, they're beating against the wall of the system that are the ones that potentially made this mistake to begin with, where our audience is you, uh, a world of ordinary people that have the power and abilities to to reach places and reach people that the law never could. Uh, and that's why they reached out to us, and that's what we're hoping will ultimately lead to finding the truth, whatever that truth is, as we move forward. Don says, whose idea was the message in a bottle? I'd say it was a genius plea for help. Apparently Jamie's. Uh, I, I assumed that Tammy had something to do with that. And and I thought I was, because I saw that that question on the fan page, was going to come up. And so I thought I'm, I'll be able to answer that. So I, I sent Tammy a text this morning and said, Hey, did you arrange that? Assuming that that's what happened. And then shortly before we recorded, she texted me back and said, Nope, that was all Jamie. So I don't know how he did that because so essentially I, I, I have in my mind, and I'm going to ask him when I get him on the phone here this afternoon. I assume it's something like you write a letter and then you mail it to this company and tell them I want a message in a bottle sent to this person. Yeah. I don't know how Jamie got money to to do it. To do that. I like I said I would assume Tammy would be the one on the outside to help him do that. She said she had nothing to do with it. So I I really don't have a clue, but it, it was it, it was interesting cuz you you expected it, it how long did it sit on my desk? Uh it was like a month, wasn't it? Yeah, it was weeks at least, if not a month because I just didn't know what to do with it. And, and there was no like note that said, here's a, me- you have a message from Jamie Snow. You should check this out. It was just, just the bottle. Hmm. And when I finally opened it, because the, the, the return address was just the company that sent it. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how he pulled it off, but it definitely got my attention. Uh, and Jamie's been very, he's, he's got some other things he does with his letters. Every time, every letter to really draw, you put some highlighter on him and he writes the website and stuff. So that, that's why when I saw Jamie Snow, I was like, wait a minute, don't I have a stack of letters from, a Jamie Snow already, and then I went through it, and then of course Tammy submitted the case submission and answered all the because again on the ca- the case submission form, if any of you haven't ever been there, if you have a case you're interested in, maybe you send an email or a message or something. If you fill it there, that helps us a lot because it's got certain things that we're looking for. You know, it, it's asking were there jailhouse snitches, were there any confessions, has anybody recanted, are they represented? You know, and the fact that Jamie was represented by the Exoneration Project. Definitely got my attention because when you have an organization 
that will only represent people that they truly believe are innocent. Now, that's somebody that's within the law, that knows the system, that's in the system, that has looked at the case and thinks he's innocent. So there, there's more likely to be something actually there. Okay, Brian says, do we know what type and color vehicle Jamie drove back in 1991, as we have heard about a tan vehicle being seen? It seems to me as investigators in 1999 wanted to pin this robbery and murder on someone who fit the mold just to close the case. It makes no sense to me that Jamie passes a lie detector, looks nothing like the possible suspect, no physical evidence, and has an alibi. What, if any, connection did Bill and Jamie have that we know of that might have led up to Jamie wanting to confront Bill the night of the robbery and shooting? Well, regarding the car, Jamie didn't have a car. And that's, uh, as we as we dig deeper, you're going to see how that becomes relevant because, you know, as the police sort of set their sights in on Jamie and thought they had it all figured out, sort of hit a roadblock when they found out that he lived all the way on the other side of town and didn't own a vehicle. So there's in no way walking distance from where he lived to where the, the gas station was. So they needed somebody with a car to be an accomplice, which they, they, they did eventually find somebody with a car to be an accomplice. Yeah, I did catch in his interview, he brought up somebody, I believe he called her Susan. He said his co-defendant, Susan, which right. is this from the Bill Little murder or is this from the Freedom Oil robbery? So that was that was from the Bill Little murder. And it was essentially, again, I haven't been through the trial transcripts yet, but as I'm starting to piece this together as we're moving forward, there was there was another woman, Susan Claycomb, who was charged also with, uh, it was it was Jamie's co-defendant in Bill Little's murder. Okay. And it looks to me like that was her connection was Jamie doesn't have a car. He couldn't possibly have driven there. Someone else had to drive him there. And so they bring in this Susan woman to be that person. Yeah. Do yeah. we know? I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll get there, but do we know any connection between those two? Yeah, she is. She was. She's, she's unfortunately passed away since then. I believe she was his sister-in-law. Okay. But there's is a connection like that. I believe it was sister in law. Uh, again, I'd have to refer back to back to my notes. But the police pulled her in. The nuts and bolts of it are to do what they seem to have done throughout this case. And we see this. And there's one of those questions you ask about wrongful convictions. Did something like this happen? Where look at the Anand Syed case was a very a perfect example. How did Jay Wilds get involved? I believe he knows nothing. They brought him in, threatened to charge him. Either you're going to be the guy, or you're going to tell us he's the guy. Because we we already have our sights set on this guy. That's what happened with Susan Claycomb, is they brought her in and arrested her as being the getaway driver and accomplice or just charged her with murder. And then once they had her on the rope, said, well, if you'll give us a statement that Jamie is the one that went in and pulled the trigger, then we'll drop the charges on you or give you some sort of great deal. Okay. And you heard him mention that. I think in, in the context that Jamie was discussing, Susan, was that he's never met anyone else with such integrity aside from his co-defendant, Susan. Yeah, and that's all it was. It was just a quick quip about it that right. I just happened to catch, but I wasn't sure if it was you know, with this case or with a different case. It was with this case, and what he meant by that was because they pulled her out of nowhere eight years after the fact and said, we're charging you with murder unless you tell us that you, know, you could say you drove, but you have to tell us that Jamie Snow was the trigger man and we'll cut you this deal. And she refused. She said she's not going to lie to them. She won't do it. And she took it. I think she shocked the hell out of them because she took it to trial. And she was acquitted of the murder, hmm. which is going to get really interesting when we get into those transcripts. Because for her trial, the prosecutors had to prove to the judge, because their theory or to the jury, 
Their theory of the case was that Jamie robbed the store and killed Bill and that Susan was his driver. So they had to prove that Jamie did this at her trial and they failed to do so. And her trial came first. And so she was acquitted. But then then Jamie gets tried, going in knowing that the, they were unable to prove any of this in her trial. And then they come to his and they ended up proving it and, or proving it to a jury anyway and, and scoring their conviction. So there's a whole lot going yeah, on there. Yeah, that sounds like something much deeper to dive into. Yeah, there's a whole lot. I've actually had one of the jurors in Susan's trial reach out to me and said she's willing to talk on the podcast. Excellent. So once we get into that, we're gonna, that'll give us some good insight for somebody who was in the box listening to the evidence as it was presented. And then the, the second half of that question was, what connection did Jamie have to Bill? And I asked Jamie that last week. I've asked him before, but you know, he says he has none that he's aware of. He said he, you know, he, he can't say that he was never in the same building or bar as Bill Little, but he didn't know who he, he says he didn't know who he was. Didn't have any connection to him whatsoever. So in their case, are they saying that they have a connection though? So I know our theory is that the suspect had a personal connection with Bill, but in the state's theory, are they saying that Jamie had a connection or are they just saying this is a robbery gone wrong that Jamie was part of? I don't know. Cause I have, we're, as we're, we're going to start going through the trial transcripts next week, this week, we're going to, we're going to get into a little bit more about Jamie and I want everybody to hear his recorded interview uh, with the police. So that's going to be this week. And the next week we're going to start, we're going to start covering the case using the trial transcripts as a guide. Okay. Um, so so meaning though, so we're going to cover, here's a witness or a series of witnesses that testified to a certain thing. We're going to cover what they said at trial and then, and then use that as the spring. We're not just going to be covering the trial. That's going to be like the topic for that week. And then we'll be reaching out to other witnesses and talking to people and, and further investigating that. So I do have one other question that kind of goes along with this. We know that Jamie's been in trouble a few times. He's mm-hmm. been in and out of prison. Are any of these cases violent cases? Or, you know, there was one that sounded like a home invasion where he had stole some property. But to me, the way it was explained, it almost seems like they weren't there. They weren't. According to now, I've, I've, I've seen what documents we have on this. Jamie told me he's never been convicted of it other than the murder of mm-hmm. any violent crime. He's never, he said he's never committed of any violent crime other than fist fights here and there. And you got to keep in mind. So when I talk to Jamie, just like every other person that I work with, I told him, you lie to me once, I'm done. That's how this works. I mm-hmm. can't operate. So he's super duper cautious. You know, he's already, he's called me back and corrected me. Just little, it's funny, little, not funny, but insignificant things. Like he would explain something some way and then call me back and he's like, I, I, that's, I said it like this, but that might be put in a better light. Really, it was more like this. He's terrified that he's going to lie to me and then and I'm going to drop the case. I tell you that to tell you this. I believe him when he tells me he's never done anything. He's never been convicted of, arrested for, or done anything violent. He was a a burglar, mm-hmm. as he put it. On top of that, from the documents I've seen, that seems to be the case. When I talked to Tara, his attorney, she said the same thing. So it it wasn't a home invasion. He was convicted of it was it was a burglary. He would mm-hmm. break into houses when people weren't home and steal things. Yeah, and that's my thought. Was I'm not saying that criminals can't evolve to become violent but i i just find it unlikely that he's going to have these charges that kind of all line up together and then one that's completely different that is a violent crime i'm guessing the prosecution's theory is that it was a robbery gone wrong not that it was a a targeted attack against bill i just think that if they if they thought that they would have never ended up with with jamie snow i, I do want to point out too 
jeez, um, new rule about not bringing the cell phones into the recording booth because they cause interference was a good rule until I need to look something up that was on my phone. But someone last week had asked, uh, they were asking, there was um, Maurice Johnson and and his friend that is the one that told the girlfriend about Maurice as a suspect. And someone asked, because Maurice was African-American, if the other guy was as well. Danny Hartley texted me and told me that, yes, that guy was also African-American. So I, one of the other was, I think he said he was more lighter skin, but but they were both African-American. So that answers your question with that, according to Danny Hartley. And we've also had a, a voicemail come in that, um, and the gentleman may be listening right now, but we had, and that may happen this week or next week when you guys get to hear it. There's just so much happening all at once. Uh, but we had a voicemail come in from someone who was a friend of Jamie Snow's and says that he was, did he say organizer or kind of the head of? I think he, yeah, I think he said he was the head of the Northsiders. Yeah, the Northsiders, uh, what he called the the street gang in Bloomington in 91. It sounded like from the voicemail that he disagreed with the way that um, Drew on the show described the Northsiders. And and wants to explain that to me. Well, so that's something I really want to hear. Yeah, me too. Like I, Mike, we were in the middle of putting this room together yesterday, and Mike played the voicemail. It's like, oh, we can't call him yet until we finish setting this up, but we're going to give him a call. <laughs> Sue says, "I'm still bothered by the supposed scar on the killer's cheek, mentioned by witnesses. First, how could they see a scar from a distance? And second, Jamie doesn't have such a scar. Have you told us yet the composition of the jury?" How could presumably 12 people disregard this inconsistency? Well, that's a good question. You heard in Jerry Gutierrez, remember when we played his recorded interview that again occurred in 1999, and you heard the officers talking to him about the scar, and they were really shifting it from a scar to a fresh wound. You remember that conversation mm-hmm. where they're like, so it was a scar, like it was fresh, was it like a new cut, and... And I think Jerry said, oh, it was like a new cut. You know, it was the way he was describing it, basically the way they wanted him to describe it. I don't know. I don't know if there was any kind of, I mean, he seemed like he spoke good English. I don't know if there's any kind of language barrier there or why he would say scar as opposed to cut. I don't know. I don't know how you, because also Jamie's never had his ears pierced. You know, you can have your ears pierced and they close up, but you can see, you can't hide that. You can tell, like I had my ear pierced back in the 90s. And even though I haven't had an earring in my ear for almost 30 years, you can still see the mark there. You can still see that it, it, it probably couldn't put an earring through it, but you can see that it, it was pierced. Jamie's never had his ear pierced either. And Gutierrez's uh, suspect that he drew clearly had a uh, an earring in his ear. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how the police got past it. All right. Tyler says, growing up here in Oregon, meth has always been an issue. Were homebrew drugs hitting the scene in that town, Bloomington? Because meth will make anyone do over-the-top stuff when it comes to scoring either more meth or money for meth. Yeah, I'm sure. I did a, I did a little bit of research into this before uh, sitting down so we don't have another ATM incident. And I was surprised when I looked up methamphetamines, you know, as far as, you know, when they really kind of hit the streets in the United States. And it's been, like, centuries. Really? Yeah. See, I would have thought it was more recent. Me too. I think, I think that it is, from what I was reading, it was... It's metamorphosized in the in the delivery methods of it. They called them like Bennies or Benzies, whatever. There were different types of meth. But as far as like crystal meth, um, if that's the talking about methamphetamines, crystal meth, it seems that even in the nineties that was around. It was a possibility. But you know, again, we don't have any indication one way or another because we don't know who did this if they were on it. But I mean, 
There's a lot of different things that could cause somebody to be out of their mind. They could have been tripping on acid. They yeah. could have been, you know, a lot of different stuff. I don't know as far as Bloomington, but I know the early 90s had a huge crack epidemic too. And that's, right. That was a big deal. In the Midwest, I'm yeah. for sure here, which is only two and a half hours away from there. Mm-hmm. All right. Daniel says, more of a general question. Why do investigators get so locked in on one suspect and then seem to never find the right person? Well, I mean, you got to understand this doesn't happen all the time for every I would say probably for every one time this happens there's probably 99 times where they get it right but I mean it's just bad police work is is the difference between an evidence driven investigation and a suspect driven investigation and it just I think it's just human nature I think we all forget sometimes that police officers detectives FBI agents everyone judges lawyers that everyone in that system are just n- human beings they're capable of making mistakes. What it seems to me is that they get, you know, an officer gets blinders on. They get locked into, we saw it with Damian Eccles. We saw it with Ed Eights. We saw it with Jesse Eldridge. I mean, we've seen it over and over and over again. George Powell, I, literally every case we've worked in mm-hmm. Ansayed, that there may be some sort of hint or clue or some reason at the beginning of the investigation where the investigators will turn to a particular suspect but instead of continuing to gather evidence, they, they, they shift their investigation into a suspect-driven investigation where now I'm trying to find evidence against you. That needs to happen. Jim Clementi has told us that needs to happen. An investigation starts out being evidence-driven to lead you to the suspect. And at some point, yeah, you do shift to a suspect-driven and try to secure the rest of your case. But when that shift happens too early, this is what we end up with. And it's hard to admit you're wrong. I mean, a lot of people will say that they can just, oh, yeah, I was wrong. But it's hard to admit you're wrong, whether it's talking about a movie quote or whatever. It's it's just hard to do, yeah, especially in a public professional atmosphere. I mean, people's judges and lawyers careers could be on the line, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And another thing I wanted to mention really quick was that you were kind of covering how police could make mistakes. But also, I think we could think about um, their motivations and pressure in the professional space yet again to like seal a, to to close a case. Well, it's what incentivizes them, right? Mm-hmm. That's how they get promoted. That's how they right. they get better positions. That's how a judge moves to be a judge or a lawyer moves to being a prosecutor to being a a judge. It's all about closing those cases, and and there's a lot, especially when you have community and family pressure, which you don't see that as much in a town like Baltimore or Houston, right? Because there's there's just so many murder cases out there. You take a town like Bloomington that averages two homicides a year, and that average is swayed by you know one triple homicide one year or whatever. There's a lot more pressure, I think, for people trying to find that one murderer. One person was murdered in our town this year. Why haven't you found the person who did it yet? It definitely puts a lot more pressure on them. And you're talking small town elections too. You know, you're not looking big labor unions and. And and different political action committees that are out there pushing certain candidates. It's a small town. I mean, it's it's big compared to where we live, but it's a it's a small town in general. And these little cases, every individual case makes a lot bigger difference. And if they can say they solved it and they closed it, that's how they get reelected. Sandy says, "Have you been able to contact Martinez? I feel he holds the key to who did this." I have not, and I'm really looking forward to getting into his trial testimony. Uh, Mike and I, when we were in Bloomington, we tried to track him down. We went to several addresses that we were finding for him, uh, left some business cards, don't know if we had the right places or not, uh, tried some phone numbers. I do know that that Tammy and Ray and the, the team of investigators that worked on the case have attempted to speak with him on multiple occasions. 
And uh, sounds like his response is always the same. Go see the state's attorney. I'm, I'm not going to speak with you. Speak to the state's attorney's office. Jen says, is it possible whoever was in there, the store, got startled at the time and shot on accident and had to make it look like a robbery? I don't think so. The, the timeline, and if we go off the timeline, we know how long that drawer was open and we know when we assume the shots are. Well, something could startle them to, to, cause, to cause a shot even five minutes later, you know what I mean, if they're pointing the gun. And but why are you still there? The air compressor turns on or something, whatever, for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. maybe they didn't intend to shoot, but yet that doesn't account for somebody shooting you twice in the chest with a revolver. That's why I said no. Is, is, maybe you accidentally get scared and pull the trigger once. But that doesn't, you know, like I said, I, th- I think we were, were in agreement. It's likely a revolver. So whether it's single action or double action, it's it's not an accidental. You either got to recock the gun to shoot the next round or take that long trigger pull to pull the next round. So there's no way, in my mind, you shoot him twice by accident. All right. Elizabeth says, can you post a copy of the probable cause affidavit and warrant that were filed in order to arrest Jamie Snow in this case? Yeah. So this week. I don't know exactly which documents we have for all that. Tammy's getting them organized for me as we speak. Uh, But we're going to cover Jamie's arrest and, like I said, play his police interview so you can hear that. And those documents will be posted right along with that. And um, we're running short on time, but I want to update you guys all. I do not have details on this. I literally just got this text as we were sitting here recording. But I just got a text from Liz Rose, who is the daughter of Sandy and Jim Melgar from our Season 6 case. Sandy's case has been uh, has been waiting in the 14th District Court of Appeals. The um, the Seacrests have requested oral arguments on her appeal. All I have to report to you right now is that I just got a text from Liz that says the 14th District Court has denied oral arguments. So I, I do not know. I will update you more on that as we move along. But that's it's it's not the news that we wanted to hear. That doesn't mean, in my understanding, that they denied the appeal but they're not going to allow the attorneys to have an actual hearing and argue before the court, which means I think they'll be going just off of the written briefs, if I understand it right. We'll update you more on that as we get more information. So in the meantime, we're going to wrap this episode up. Make sure you tune in on Sunday, and and I'll get any information out on Sandy's case out on social media as soon as I get it. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can also connect with Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.